you got your Bibles, will you open up with me Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. We are in our third week in the book of Ephesians. It's good to be with you. Just encourage you, we had a lot of announcements. Encourage you to sign up for our October newsletter. That gives you an opportunity to uh, be able to, look at the echo, be, uh, be able to Sign up to our October newsletter. That gives you the opportunity to see what's happening coming up. So we have a prayer ministry starting October as well, uh, 920. Hopefully on Sunday mornings, come join us for prayer, 920 to 940, right before service, opportunity for you to join us in that. Uh, also, we have a 5K coming up in November for Adoption Awareness Month, an opportunity for us to raise money for our adoption fund as well. So love for you to join us in those two things, but more information's coming. So uh, just to put that on your radar. I feel like, uh, you know, we go to those ballparks and then people up in the, like, the very cheap seats, they give them like a couple people a, a special ticket and they get to come in the front row. We have front row available to all these people. I used to work with, uh, early on in youth ministry, one of our bosses, uh, we used to call it the, the splash zone because he used to spit as he spoke. So in youth ministry, like the first three rows were never taken, but I promise you I don't spit that far. Um, so there are safe seats if you, but I know... Uh, Bleachers are kind of fun too. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, hear God's word starting in verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10 with me. Paul writes this. He says, You are dead in your trespasses and sins, and whence you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind, but, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love and with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him and seated uh, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God and not a result of work, so that no one can boast. For, for we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. On Scott Saul's latest blog, he talks about the anger that kind of raised up in his soul when he saw in the news that a famous prisoner had come to saving faith. He's almost shocked by kind of the, the reaction he had and I have to admit to you, as I heard the news as well, I had the same feeling as Scott Sauls did. When the news that Jeffrey Dahmer came to saving faith. Know anything about this man? You know the crimes he committed were heinous. Worse, I think, than anybody could ever commit. And as if we begin to think of this man and think of his saving faith, I think we understand Scott Sauls' reaction here. Some sense this man seems too far gone. His crimes too too horrible for grace to be able to cover them. Then one pastor is quoted as saying, if this man is ending up in heaven, I don't want to go there. 
And hearing this news of this, this prisoner, this murderer, this, this one, it, it forces us to deal with the own implications of our own gospel. Forces us to ask questions. How big is God's grace? Who is deserving of this grace? Forces us to ask questions of why does God's grace seem so scandalous at times? You just look throughout scripture and you see the scandal of, of King David committing adultery and then murder. And you're thinking, can, can this man be forgiven? Should he be forgiven? You walk through scripture and you see the prostitute hang out with, with Jesus. And no wonder the, the Pharisees are looking in and begging to ask questions. In fact, I think we often forget how crazy our gospel truly is. I think we hear stories about God's grace and we've, we've missed the shock that, that should be there when we see God's grace in the expanse of all that it's able to cover. This morning, you, you might be feeling the same thing as we begin to read these first three verses. We read these three verses and it's kind of staggering to what we find within them. We read three verses and we see that, that there's such a craziness to this passage. In fact, I think we're often shocked, but you know who isn't shocked about the grace that's found in this passage? Paul. Because this was his life. You look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, this is a picture of what took place in his own life. Remember, Saul was, or Paul was also known as Saul of Tarsus. And in many ways, Saul's of Tarsus, that, that name would bring the same fear that Jeffrey Dahmer would bring to, to other people. It was a name that was feared. Ananias, when he was told to go lay hands on, on this man named Saul of Tarsus or Paul, we remembered what Ananias said. He turned to his Lord and he says, Lord, I've heard from many of the evil that this man has committed in Jerusalem. I've heard from many that now he has the power from the high priest to put followers of the way into prison in other words what he's saying is hey are you are we sure we're talking about the right guy god are we sure this this man who has been known for his crimes and in in being the one who actually was smiling when stephen got stoned this man dies and he has a smile on his face the one telling everybody else yes this is allowed do you really want your grace to be given to this man what Ananias is kind of asking. And with this understanding of, of Paul and his previous life, of the sin that he was stuck in, it, it allows this passage to come to life. It allows this passage to, to allow us to see the beauty that's found within it because, again, this was Paul's life. And this morning, I hope that we would see that this is our story as well. So I want to talk to you on the topic of God's immeasurable grace found in the gospel. The power for this gospel to transform any person. But before I do, let us go to prayer one more time. God, I'm mindful of Paul's prayer in the first chapter. That we would know you more. So God, we ask this morning that you would give us a spirit of enlightenment, that we would be able to see you in all your worth, in all your power, in all your glory. 
God, we pray that we would ever understand the hope that is given in a passage like this. The immeasurable grace that is given to us for all of eternity. Let us rest in that this morning. God, I pray that you would be able to empower us by your power. The power that you are able to transform lives. Lord, you are the sovereign one, so we, we submit our lives to you this morning, that you would be able to speak boldly through your word. God, edit in anything to, to allow your holiness to shine through. Edit out anything that would demean your name. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen. So we look at this passage again. What we begin to see is the first three verses are somewhat shocking. They, 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 they contain words that, that maybe we're not used to. Dead in our trespasses, sin, children of wrath. And what's so interesting about these words is, is we understand this passage. We see the first three verses. What's so shocking in our culture is we're not shocked by the scandal of God's grace in passes 4 to 10. We're shocked that we would be labeled children of wrath for verses 1 through 3. And I think the reason for that is we, we've kind of in our culture kind of diminished sin in many ways. Yes, there's some sins in our culture that are still taboo, but overall we've kind of assumed that sin isn't that big of a deal. And as we begin to lower sin, we have taken almost joy in this fact. So again, there's this sense as we read these first three verses, there, there might be a shock to you as we begin to see these words again, that these words are... Uh, uh, words of sin, dead in our trespasses, children of wrath, all words that are very politically incorrect in our culture. Therefore, many of us try to avoid the first three, chapter, or first three verses. But yet, as we begin to try to avoid the first three verses, what we do is we, we miss the beauty that's found in verses 4 through 10. So what Paul is doing here in these first three verses is he, he shows us the bleak, the the, the sin, the darkness of our previous life. And he does so so that the shining diamond of verses 4 through 10 will be able to shine all that brighter. A few men, when you were beginning to buy your engagement ring for your spouse, what they did is they began to put your diamond, they put a black sheet down so that the diamond's brightness would shine all that brighter. And this is exactly what Paul is doing in these first three verses. He lays down the bleakness, the darkness, because he understands that our ability to be thankful for our Savior, our ability to be thankful for grace, is proportional to our understanding of how fallen we truly were. You think Christ just came in and kind of fixed a couple things, you're okay, it, yeah, you thank Him, but you don't really thank Him. But yet when you realize, Paul is writing that we were dead in our trespasses, that we were headed in the opposite direction of God, but yet God in His grace shows up and, and begins to reveal Himself to us and transform us, that's when we see the beauty of a passage like this. So Paul begins in verses 1 through 3 saying that, yes, you're dead in your trespasses. And this word, dead in our trespasses, what does this exactly mean? What he's really talking about is this idea of spiritual death. That, that we have been separated from the giver of life because of our sin. In fact, he mentions this idea of being dead in our trespasses in verse 1 and in verse 5. In other words, because sin entered this world and because we have sinned, we have been separated from the vine of life, God himself. And in that separation, it has created this spiritual deadness, a spiritual deadness that, that is not just because of our condemnation, because of what we'll see later on in the future, 
but a spiritual deadness before Christ that we felt in the present. That we were unable to see God's glory, not willing to see God's glory. We're unable to follow God's commands, not willing to even follow God's commands. We were spiritually dead. And again, this language in our culture is not exactly what we like to see. Again, we've kind of assumed that we're basically good people. And I think the reason that we've kind of, consumed, kind of come to this conclusion that we're basically good people is because we're looking at the wrong standard. Just turn on the news and it makes you feel pretty good about yourself, right? As long as you're not the one going out and beating somebody up at the ballpark anymore, if you're not the one flipping out at the convenience store, not doing who knows what with who knows who, you, you begin to feel pretty good about yourself. Just turn on the local news and we begin to say, hey, I've, I've got it kind of together. But the problem is the guy down the street is not my standard of what I'm called to follow. My standard is God's law, and when I compare myself to God's law, I begin to see how fallen I truly were before Christ. Because what, the, what, what, what happens is I look at God's law, specifically just go to the Sermon on the Mount. You see the Sermon on the Mount, it begins to reveal to us just because we weren't the ones beating up the guy at the ballpark, we've still beaten up people many, many times with our words. And even if those words are covered and behind somebody's back, they're still liable to judgment according to God. And the reason why is because it's a heart issue. The heart reveals my behavior. So yes, I might not beating him, uh, beating that person up with my hands, but yet in my heart I still hate that man, and therefore God says I'm still liable for judgment. See, what the Sermon on the Mount does is it takes this outward behavior and it moves it to the root, which is the heart. What Jesus is trying to get us to understand is those thoughts, those, those things are the overflow of the heart. So therefore, when I'm disobedient to him, not only in action, but in thought, again, I see how fallen my state truly was. We begin to see that Paul's words are true, that we are dead in our trespass. And in fact, look at what he says next in verses 2 through 3. He shows us the deadness because of the environments that were surrounding us and the ways in which we used to walk. Verse 2 and 3, it says, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in sins of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions in our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In those couple verses, we see that there's three atmospheres that we felt at home in. First of all, it says in verse 2 that we walk by the ways of the world. The world is kind of this symbolic kind of language that Paul used to everything that sets itself up against God's commands and his moral order. The world is symbolic to those who have chosen to live independently of God. And in our previous life before Christ, we went along with that. We were not the solution to the problem. No, we partook in the problem. In fact, Paul does a great job describing what worldliness looks like in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And listen to what his words say. He says, we were once marked by being lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, 
lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And yet does that not describe the world that we live presently in? It does a pretty good job of describing it. And yet what, what Paul is saying is this, this was our home. We felt at ease in that home before Christ. So not only he says we were walking in the ways of the world, but next he says that we were walking in the ways of Satan. Strong language. But again in verse 2 it says we are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now in works in sons of disobedience. In our rebellion against God, we are walking right in Satan's ways. In fact, what Satan is, what he's trying to say is the world, was the world is Satan's dominion. And because the world is Satan's dominion right now in this life, then we're going to, to, to see his influence and see his power upon this world. That Satan and his demons had set themselves up against God's moral order and his redemption plan and, his, and his, 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 in trying to follow his obedience. And yet before Christ, we walked in those ways. We were okay following the ways of Satan, walking against our God. Not only were he influenced the world but by Satan, but lastly, he kind of goes to our sinful nation, na nature. He says we were, we were once enslaved to the passions and desires of the lust of our fallen sinful nature. And this fallen sinful nature really is the result of the sin because Adam, and, uh, Adam sinned, now sin entered the world. And because of that, our hearts have, have malfunctioned ever since. The sin has been passed on to generation to generation. That's why Jeremiah would say our hearts are deceitful. They're sinful beyond all knowledge. Who can understand this, this deceitful heart? And he begins to describe these three influences that we're taking part in, that we were felt at home and with the world and with Satan kind of following his ways and our own sinful inclinations. Again, we see how fallen we truly are, or were. And as we see how fallen we truly were, we begin to see what was taken, what needed to take place with salvation. Because again, what the world is going to tell us is that what we really needed was just a kind of four-step plan, maybe a seven-step plan for those who are really way gone, but a self-improvement plan, right? You got an anger problem, take some deep breaths. And you begin to read this anger booklet of seven steps to a better you, and you begin to say, okay, take some deep breaths, and maybe I don't punch the guy now, but again, in my heart, I still hate him. And the seven, the, these seven steps to a better me, it doesn't transform the heart. And it's frustrating, because you're reading, you're like, man, I still got anger towards this person. How can I correct it? What Paul needs us to see is a self-improvement plan is not the answer. It doesn't have the power. To transform my heart. The only thing that has the power to transform my heart is God. So he begins to show us the bleakness, the sinfulness, the darkness of our past before Christ. So that we can see the miracle of transformation that takes place in verse 4. Verse 4, but God. God intervened. God became our hope. God stepped in into our lives. And that's when the transformation began to take place. In fact, notice what he's saying in verse 5. He's saying this transformation when God intervened, but God intervened while we were still dead in our trespasses. Meaning God didn't wait for us to correct ourselves. 
God didn't wait for us to improve ourselves. No, we were headed in the opposite direction, trying to please the sinful inclinations of our flesh. Our hearts were inclined to ourselves, and we were okay with that. But God, but God stepped in. That's the beauty of this passage. That before we we even cleaned ourselves up, our great hope stepped in and intervened. In fact, we see this in Paul's life. Remember where Paul was headed? He was going to Tarsus, I mean Damascus. And as he's going to Damascus, what is he doing on this road? In his heart of hearts, he was longing to lock up some Christians. He was longing for them to be flogged or beaten or even be put to death. And the great irony of the story is that God intervenes, but when he intervenes, he doesn't bring judgment. He just doesn't just knock out Paul. But he intervenes to save Paul, to transform Paul and call Paul his own. Is that not amazing? Thinking often we read these stories, but we don't make it personal. We don't put a person to the face of what this passage is actually about. Here Paul was, he's longing to kill people, but God intervened, didn't bring judgment, but transformed his heart. And yet that is our story as well, friends. You might be in this room, you're saying, well, I, my, my, my story's not that radical, but yes, it is. In so many ways that yes, we were trying to please ourselves, but God intervened into our lives, and that's when he brought, he brought our transformation about. He saved us because of his good grace. In fact, as we read these passages, what's so crazy about this is when God intervened into our life, he didn't bring judgment upon us. No, he came to transform us as well. In fact, it's almost hard not to be shook by the contrast we see in verses 1 through 3 to verses 4 through 10. Fallen, children of wrath, sins of, uh, sons of disobedience, what takes place in verses 4 through 10? We're made alive in Christ. We're seated with Christ. We have his immeasurable grace pouring down upon us for all of eternity. In fact, verse 7, I think, is the, is the passage that really shines in this passage. I know verses 8 through 10 kind of get the limelight. We all kind of memorize those. But verse 7, read verse 7 again with me. So that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Does that verse stun you? Does it, does it shock you? Immeasurable. Meaning that his grace is too big, it's too wide, it's too vast, it's too lofty for us to even comprehend, count it, or measure it. And where is that grace headed? It's headed toward us. All of eternity, for ages, today. From this day on, his kindness, immeasurable, pointed towards his church and us. In fact, you've probably seen it in the news about the queen and, and, and now the king who takes the queen's spot. You see these articles about the radical amount of funds that now are become and belong to the king. And how his life has been transformed in one second. 
he instantly became this millionaire. And all these writers are writing about the fortune that he now inherits. Why are they so shocked by this? Because in an instant, in one day, his life is radically transformed and he inherits millions. And yet I was reading a story about Cam Newton, the old Carolina Panthers quarterback. He just did an interview recently and he was talking about how he entered the league at the age of 21. And he was entering the league at 21 and he made $22 million in his contract. He goes from rags to riches overnight. And what, he, what Cam Newton was saying, he says, the number 22 was so loud, I couldn't understand 22, but what's so shocking to me is that every game he was making $735,000 every week. And he says that's what was so shocking. The very next week, another $735,000 in my bank account. The next week, another $735,000 in your bank account. Every week, your bank account is increasing by that amount of money. And he's like, man, that, that was just beyond my comprehension. And yet, that's our story. That, that's our story. Then the gospel is this story of rags to riches. In one second, we were dead in our trespasses. We were children of wrath. In the very next second, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ... His immeasurable grace is upon us. And what the passage is saying is from now on, for every single day, for all of eternity, we get to experience the immeasurable amount of his kindness directed towards his children. Our spiritual bank accounts increases each and every day to an amount we can't even comprehend. He says, that's us. This is our story. Transformation. Salvation. In fact, we begin to see it. What's so striking here is he's talking about this transformation. Is this transformation was not done by anything we brought to the table. We, we didn't do anything to deserve it. Look at what it says in verse 8. For, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of your work, so that no one can boast. And I know we read that verse in kind of this apologetic kind of fashion. But I don't think it's supposed to be read in that way. It's supposed to be this glorious news that it isn't dependent on us. So that we don't get to boast. In fact, I think we often forget or under, misunderstand what boasting was all about and what he's writing here in this passage. See, in the olden days, when these, what he's really talking about is this vain boasting that the soldiers used to do. And they went to war, the soldiers back in that day, remember they just lined up and they're kind of facing each other. So those first kind of group of people in those first three lines, even farther, just get wiped out. They knew they were going to die when they were up in the front. They knew. So what they did to kind of overcome this fear and this insecurity of understanding they're, they're headed toward their death is they began to boast. To boast about the strength of their, their, their army. He used to boast about the, the speed of their chariots. He used to boast about the, the size of their weapons. But the crazy part is, it was all in vain. It was an empty boasting because they were dead. And what Paul is saying is, is he says, I don't want you to go down that path. The great news is we don't have to. 
This vain conceit, yes, dead in our trespasses, and then boasting in our works, it still leaves us dead in our trespasses. And just like this army was, was boasting about the strength of their army, realizing they were going to be killed in that next second, Paul says, I don't, I, don't, I don't want you going down that path. Great news of the gospel isn't, isn't dependent on us. Which means that salvation now is available to, to everyone. It can transform anyone. You see what Paul is leading at in this idea? This idea that, that if we're going to depend on our own works, it's like this rope you pull on, but it's not tied to anything else, and it just comes crashing down. For us to depend on our works, it doesn't make sense. Why? Because it doesn't have the ability to transform my dead heart. My normal works doesn't have the ability to appease God's wrath. In fact, for me to try to depend on my works, try to enter in salvation, is as foolish as me getting pulled over on my way home for running a red light. Officer comes to my window and I say, well, officer... This isn't really a big deal. I stopped at the 1,000 red lights before this. I'm going to stop at the next 1,000. But my heart is still evil, so after 1,000, I'll probably break the law again. But you shouldn't give me a ticket. Imagine me saying that to him. He's going to look at me like I'm crazy. Why? Because I committed, committed offense. And that offense needs justice. Somebody's got to pay the ticket. And the great news of the gospel is somebody did pay the ticket. It was Jesus. The great news of the gospel is he's saying you don't have to pay for your own justice. But have somebody who will. Let me give you that link. Let me give you that rope that links you to Jesus. And it comes through faith. It comes through faith. So that when we put our trust in Jesus, there's when salvation enters our life. Well, what is faith? Well, I think faith, the best way to explain it is this idea of God confidence. It's, it's trust. It's, it's God confidence, placing our, our full trust and our full confidence into God that he's the one who provides our salvation for us and we are not the ones who have to bring anything to the table. So that when I put my faith in, in, in Christ, I'm trusting that his work on the cross satisfied God's wrath for me. And therefore, I am saved. I'm made new. I'm transformed. You see the transformation that takes place in this passage? You, you see the great news that, that instant, with, without our even doing, we would put our faith in Jesus Christ. We were dead in our trespasses, and now what does the passage say, verse 5? Made alive in Christ. We, we were sitting in our despair, but now where are we sitting? Seated with Christ Jesus in the heavenlies. We, we, we are a mess. We were stuck in our sin. But now what are we, verse 10? A masterpiece. And created in Christ Jesus to walk in good works. Once we were walking in the ways of the world, walking in the ways of Satan. What does verse 10 say? Now we're walking in obedience. Good works that God has provided on our behalf. You've seen the great news of this. Again, it's not of our own doing, even the faith part. Talk about the sovereignty, what we talked about in verse 10. Now we see it again, and that's great news. Why? It's not dependent on man. Because it's not dependent on man, it's dependent on God. And because it's dependent on God, it's his 
It's his to provide on our behalf. So therefore, he can save anyone. Jeffrey Dahmer's of the world, he can transform in a second. Nothing they bring to the table, friends. The prostitutes of the world, nothing, nothing they bring to the table. Therefore, it's all dependent on his mighty and great grace. Do you see his grace? Do you see how crazy it truly is? In fact, I was just reading, the, you just read Hosea. You get caught up in this book and, and you see God's grace and how it doesn't make sense. And yes, it's immeasurable. The story of Hosea, God comes to this man and says, hey, I want you to, to, to show off to the people my great love and my great grace towards them. So he tells Hosea, I want you to go marry a prostitute, Gomer. And imagine Hosea in the second, a prophet, a man of God, saying, you want me to marry who? It doesn't make sense. You, you want me to be yoked with this prostitute? Here I am, a man of God, and yet I'm going to be connected to this sinful person? And God says, if you think that's crazy, you know what's even crazier? A holy God connected to, to sinful people in covenant together for all of eternity. So he says to, to, to Hosea, he says, I, I need you to go. And, and, and then in chapter 3, when she, when she cheats on you again, he already brought her in. Chapter 3, she, she leaves again. So Hosea, go back and get her. But this time it's costing more money. He's got to, to, to be able to, to, to pay for her freedom. Most scholars believe the going rate at that time was 30 shekels. The passage says he had to pay for 15 Scholar says that Hosea didn't even have 30 to pay for. He gave everything he had, which was only 15. He gave everything he had to purchase a person who didn't want anything to do with him, went back to her whole way of life, cheated on him. And God says, that's, that's my love for my people. In fact, again, I think we need to put some pictures to this. I think we... Francine Rivers, in her, in her book, Redeeming Love, I think she does a good job explaining this picture of, of this, the craziness of this story. Our God is a God who forgives. Our God is a God who transforms. Our God is a God who has poured out his grace. And in an instant, he transformed our lives. Dead in our trespasses, made alive in Christ. Seated in our despair, now we're seated with Christ Jesus. We were a mess. He made us a masterpiece. All not what we did, but all what his son did on our behalf. You see the shocking news of this story? That's our story. That's our story. Together, if you looked at this passage, we'll close on this note. If you look at this passage, what you see is that it wasn't written in this personal sense, it's our. He's talking about the church, us together. This is our story, that, that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, not only we personally transformed, but now we get a family. We're in this together. All of us get to experience the immeasurable kindness of God's grace that he pours out on us each and every day.
We get to see that next week as we begin to see that the great news of the gospel is not only is it reconciled us vertically to our God, but it's reconciled us horizontally to every other tribe and nation who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. Man, it's a great news that in heaven I get to see people of all nationalities. I get to experience the greatness of what God has gifted those nationalities, and I get to experience it as well. That's our news. That's the great news that we get to experience. Leave encouraged by this. But before we do, we're going to sing one last song. Let me pray as we close. God, we're thankful. And it does baffle us, this grace. Oh God, I'm thankful for it. And we get to rest in it. Find our assurance in it. And because it was all you're doing, we, we can't get rid of it. That your salvation is guaranteed. Oh God, let us rest in that. God, let your church proclaim this great news. That you have the ability to transform anyone. This faith is available to everyone. They simply turn to look to you. God, be with your church. Praise in your son's name.